Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Michelle Cameron about her third novel, Beyond the Ghetto Gates. The intense interest in the horrors of World War II that has characterized the last few years has tended to overshadow other aspects of the long history of Jewish populations in Europe and the anti-Semitism that often, although not invariably, complicated that history. Michelle Cameron's new novel explores one little-known episode in that lengthy past, the effect of Napoleon's invasion at the end of the 18th century on the Italian city of Ancona. This novel opens as her heroine, Merel, makes an unpleasant discovery. March 27, 1796, Ancona, Italy. Merel sat at the desk in her father's office, staring blankly at the open cash box. Where was the money? Her heart hammered in her chest. Three people had the key, herself, her father, and the Ketuba workshop foreman, Sabato Narducci. It was inconceivable that her father or Narducci would have taken anything without a reason. But it was nearly April when Mirel divvied out the men's quarterly wage packets, and there wasn't enough money in the box to pay them. The irrational thought that she had somehow miscounted made her scoop up the bills and coins again, hands trembling. The total was the same. Where is the money? Drawing a shaky breath, she pushed her hair out of her face and swiveled around to take the oversized ledger off the cabinet behind the desk. She let it fall open and spied a few notations and new columns on a fresh page in her father's cramped, somewhat untidy handwriting. She turned back a leaf and, sighing in relief, found the culprit. Scarlatti. And now, please join me in welcoming Michelle Cameron. Hi, Michelle. Thank you for talking with me today. Oh, it's a pleasure. As I mentioned in the introduction, uh, Beyond the Ghetto Gates is your third novel. The first, published in 2003, is described as a novel in verse. Uh, what can you tell us about In the Shadow of the Globe and how you came to write it? Um, so it is absolutely a novel in verse because it is a collection of poems. But if you start from the very first poem and read consecutively through, which you don't usually do with a, a poetry collection, you start to um, understand what the background and the story is. I actually ended up writing In the Shadow of the Globe because I had a failed um, young adult novel that I had written many years earlier about William Shakespeare in the Globe Theater. And um, I say failed because I did not um, manage to get it published. and actually, I'm very glad that I didn't. It was my third practice novel, and I still wasn't good enough, frankly. So um, I had started writing poetry while my children were very young, and I had no time. And so when it came to um, starting to write poems, I used all the research that I had done for that earlier young adult novel and started to write poems about William Shakespeare and the Globe Theater. 
and that turned into In the Shadow of the Globe. The second novel, uh, The Fruit of Her Hands, the story of Shira of Ashkenaz, uh, came out six years later from Pocket Books. Your website says that it's based on the life of one of your ancestors. So tell us, please, a bit about him and why you decided to tell this story. So after I had finished um, In the Shadow of the Globe, I was casting about for my next project. And I went to um, a family genealogy. I did not do the genealogy myself. The book would never have been written if I had. But I went, uh, one of my distant cousins had collected the family tree. And I was actually looking for more information about the woman that I was named for when at the very beginning I stumbled across this story of Mayor of Rothenburg who was a 13th century rabbi who lived, in, um, who lived in Germany, was born in Germany, went to France to study, and then moved back to Germany and became the rabbi in the city of Rothenburg. Um, my mother had always told me that we could trace our family tree back to the Middle Ages, and like a lot of what my mother told me, I kind of disregarded it. But this seemed to be proof that, in fact, she, she had been correct. And so I started looking into Mayer's story and was, frankly, fascinated by his life, about the things that he went through. Um, the story is very much about the rise of anti-Semitism in medieval Europe. And so I started to write, um, actually, I started to write very similarly to In the Shadow of the Globe in verse, and discovered that this this book really called for um, the novel, the full historical novel treatment, and so that's that's how I came to write it. It's the story of Shira of Ashkenaz primarily because um, my my mechanism was to write about Mayer's fictional wife, and I say fictional wife because at that point in time, very very few women um, had any records at all in history. And so that gave me a lot of leeway to imagine what she was like, to imagine her reaction to what her husband was undergoing. And I just found it was a great way to tell the story. It's really extraordinary that you can trace your family back that far. Um, you know, my family is from Europe and it's, I mean, the family itself must have a long history, but we don't, I, I don't know anything beyond my, say, great-grandmother, really. Uh, there are actual records of this ancestor of yours. Yes. Um, he actually is a very significant rabbi, which is one of the reasons I can trace it back. The family lineage traces um, my, my family back to several chief rabbis of Europe. And another reason why we can trace it back that far, as I said, the women weren't, weren't really recorded into family histories up until, I would say, the 1800s. Um, so fortunate for me, um, it was son to son to son to son until we actually got to my great-grandmother, at which point that was, you know, it, it became a more maternal line at that, at that point. But yes, it's, it's unusual to be able to trace your roots back that far. Before we get to the new book, I'd like to ask you also about the Writer's Circle, uh, where you are a director or the director. Uh, what does it do, and how did you become involved in it? 
So the Writer's Circle is an um, organization. We teach creative writing workshops and uh, special events for everyone from first graders on through adults. Um, I actually um, was started with them uh, almost 10 years ago. Um, the founder of the Writer's Circle, Judith Lindbergh, had started this as kind of her way of addressing the fact that her kids and um, her kids' classmates weren't learning how to write um, with any joy in school. Um, and so she, as a writer herself, she said, I can, I can address that. I came along a year later because I was looking for a way to um, sort of have the writer's life and so um, did a lot of networking to try to find the right place. And luckily, Judith um, took, a, took a chance on me because I had never taught before. Um, so this is something that um, I've done now, like I said, for almost 10 years. Um, we've grown tremendously. Um, we're basically New Jersey-based, but of course, with the pandemic, we moved everything um, virtual. And now um, we have students from all over the United States, from Europe, and in fact, even um, in our latest season, have one from Australia, um, which we, we find just mind-blowing. Um, so I, at the Writer's Circle, I teach um, our, some of our kid classes, our teen class, and I teach... Um, um, are aspiring novelists. I, I teach basically three levels of novelist classes there. And I have to say I love it. Um, we've, I've had students who have published, who are publishing, and other students who are just there for the sheer joy of telling their stories. Sounds like a wonderful project. Uh, what drew you to the story that became uh, Beyond the Ghetto Gates? How did you even learn about this part of the Napoleonic Wars? So I, after finishing The Fruit of Her Hands, again, I was casting about for a project. I had really fallen in love with Jewish history. Um, actually, because I lived so many years in Israel, I had a, a really good grounding in Jewish history, I think unusual for an American Jew. Um, but I was also um, in reaction to the Fruit of Her Hands, which really, um, again, was about the rise of anti-Semitism in Europe. I was looking for that rare, happy Jewish story. And they're not so easy to find. And um, I was reading Michael Goldfarb's nonfiction um, book called Emancipation, which is all about how the Jews of Europe left the ghettos and what impact that had in Europe. Um, when I came across his story of how N Napoleon, um, on his way through Italy, um, this is the young General Napoleon, age 26, 27, um, first encountered Jews in the harbor city of Ancona. And reading that, I basically said to myself, well, this this is absolutely a novel, um, and it's also history I had never heard about, um, which is the reaction I get from a lot of my readers, is they simply didn't know about Napoleon's involvement 
in opening up the ghetto gates throughout Italy as he was um, basically rampaging through that country. I had never heard of it, and I'm a historian for a living. I early modern Europe is one of my specialties, and I had never heard of it. So it really is a story that needs to be told. Yes, no, absolutely. And I had, I, I really, um, you know, it's it's a fascinating story. And I was very fortunate with a lot of my research and finding um, some some ways to tell the story um, in a way that I certainly hope uh, my readers enjoy. Sketch a verbal picture, please, of your heroine, Mirelle. Uh, she is, at least in the view of the local rabbi, uh, not a conventional young woman, or at least not nearly conventional enough for him. No, so Mirelle is um, an interesting character and actually was um, a difficult character for me at the beginning when I started writing because I had made her far more passive um, in the beginning. Um, she, uh, as it turns out in the book, she um, has tremendous mathematical and managerial skills. And I have to add that I'm terrible at numbers, really bad, but I have a son who is a mathematician, so I sort of used his passion for math and for numbers and, and, and gave that to, to morale. Um, so my difficulty in creating her is that she's not 100% true to her time being raised as an obedient daughter who would simply want to marry well and have children and raise them in a Jewish household. But 21st century readers don't enjoy that kind of heroine, I think, at this point. And the more I sort of dove into her character... I realized that as much as she does feel an obligation to her family, to her faith, um, that she also has a desire to help her family um, with its legacy in uh, their workshop. And so I, I, you know, um, I gave her that aspiration, and a lot of the book flows from that. Um, as far as the rabbi is concerned, you know, he doesn't come off looking wonderful, I think. But on the other hand, if you put it in the context of the age, um, he was undoubtedly very threatened by the um, Enlightenment philosophies that were percolating through Europe, through Italy at this time, and certainly having an influence on his congregation as well as any other. Indeed. And what is it that Meral wants at the beginning of the novel? So she really wants to further her family's legacy. Her grandfather had started a ketubah workshop. A ketubah is a Jewish marriage license. And the, this was one of the great gifts of research that I was given was that in starting to look into what life in Ancona was like, I discovered that it was truly a world center of ketubah making at this point. The artisans there were the, the first to illuminate ketubot, that's the Hebrew plural of ketubah, and um, they produced these absolutely exquisite documents. 
so it was, um, you know, so I gave uh, her her grandfather the backstory that he had started a Ketuba workshop in Ancona. Her father was a great artist, and he inherited it. Her brother was a great artist, um, even at a young age, and he was all set to inherit it. And Morel herself wanted, through, again, her 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 mathematical and managerial skills to work in the workshop and to um, simply help the family, you know, make this the best Ketuba workshop in the world, really. The problem that she faced was that this was not a traditional role for a woman. This, you know, her mother was opposed to it because her mother really wanted her to follow you know, Jewish tradition, to marry, to have children. Um, And her, you know, she also wanted her to marry well because that would help the Ketubah workshop by bringing in a a good dowry for her. Um, And the rabbi, as we said earlier, was also opposed, primarily because scribes um, were engaged in, in what was basically holy work. And having a girl in the workshop might, you know, um, make them have lustful thoughts. And that would never, ever do. Early on, we see Mirelle go to the market, a perfectly simple everyday task. But it reveals this incident, the conditions of ghetto life in this period before Napoleon arrives. So could you give us a sense of the constraints on Mirelle and her family right at the beginning of the book? Absolutely. So they were confined to the ghetto, which was a um, very narrow, basically one main street with some alleyways and things like that off of it. Um, They were confined there uh, by a locked gate, um, starting at sundown every day until sunup the next morning. Um, The the, uh, whole idea of a ghetto came about actually in Venice, where the Jews were um, sort of shuffled off to this island where a foundry had been. And so the word ghetto actually comes from the Italian word for foundry. Um, So they absolutely were locked inside, um, socially isolated in a way that I think we all empathize with a lot more these days. Um, and they also, whenever they left the home, um, they had to wear, um, Morel had to wear a kerchief, her father and brother had to wear a yellow hat and a yellow armband. Um, and this actually started in Europe um, in the 1200s, this is part of my previous book, as a way for um, Catholics, Christians, to be able to distinguish who was Jewish and who, um, and and so n- to know that they really shouldn't have any social interactions with them. It's really amazing when you think about it. Um, Mirel also has a friend, Dolce, is that how you pronounce it? Dolce, yes. Whose situation is considerably better than Mirel's own. Uh, what is her story and what accounts for their friendship? So Dolce is the fictional daughter of two real-life characters. The Morpurgo brothers, 
um, and in fact the Morpurgo family, had a long history in Ancona. And they were very wealthy businessmen. They they had basically um, business connections all through, um, certainly all through Europe, um, you know, and they were... Um, they they were very influential in um, the ghetto um, at this point in time. Um, the way that the girls started to become friends was that David Morpurgo had a um, considerable stake in the Ketuba factory. And so when the girls were young, um, Dolce's mother basically introduced the two girls and said, well, they should be friends. And their friendship, such as it was, grew out of them being very young friends together and certainly um, having great encouragement from from the Morpurgo family. Um, Morel's mother has her own doubts about Dolce, but because of the business connection, she keeps she basically keeps quiet about her doubts. Muriel is not the only point of view character, although she's the first one that we meet. Um, the next one is Daniel, who is a soldier, but also a relative of Muriel's. How does he wind up fighting for Napoleon? So one of the things that happened during the French Revolution was the Jews became... Um, emancipated and be, and were granted citizenship really for the first time in millennia anywhere in Europe. And so citizenship has certain rights it's certain, and, and it also has certain duties. And serving in the military at this point in time was definitely one of the duties. Now, um, Daniel didn't wait to be conscripted. Sorry, couldn't quite say that. Um, because he's he had been um, he had been apprenticed in a print shop, and at the age of you know seventeen, he was kind of like there's got to be more to life than this. So he actually ended up volunteering for Napoleon's army. Um, actually, it was for the French army, and then he ended up as part of Napoleon's army of Italy, um, and was you know, uh, became a member of the artillery um, because he too was, um, had somewhat a a gift in mathematics. And how would you describe his personality? Um, Daniel is my very reliable, um, thoughtful. um, He's he's brave, but not in sort of, he's sort of brave in that he knows what he needs to do um, and he also has, because he was raised in an um, observant family, he has doubts about some of the things that he's doing. He has doubts about whether being a soldier is really an honorable thing, but then he sort of thinks back to, well, there's biblical precedent for this. I could be, you know, like part of the um, Maccabee forces or something like that. But he's definitely the most conscientious character, I think, in, in the book. 
He too has a friend, Christoph, uh, who will later play an important role in the novel, and we won't go into that. But tell us about Christoph himself. So uh, Christoph, like Daniel, was apprenticed. They, they were both apprenticed in Christoph's uncle's print shop at the age of nine. Uh, not unusual for that time. Um, he has a um, his mother is greatly um, anti-Semitic and tried to influence him. And in fact, early on, the two boys didn't get along at all. But because they worked together for so long, a friendship grew out of it. Christoph is um, my devil make hair character. He is. Um, he certainly wasn't going to do anything like, you know, slog in the infantry or the artillery. He needed to be a soldier in the cavalry. He is sowing his wild oats, to use the parlance of the age, um, at the time. So he is um, betting the all those willing Italian girls. And uh, he's enjoying his... Um, swagger through uh, Europe as, as a member of the cavalry. What happens when Napoleon and his army reach Ancona? How does their arrival affect the lives of Mirel and her family? So when Napoleon arrived, and again, I'm going to um, reference back to the book Emancipation, because this is where I first learned about it. There was a lot, the, the ghetto gate was locked. There had been just previous riots there, and the Jews had locked themselves um, had literally locked themselves in to try and protect themselves. Um, Napoleon saw these people with these yellow caps and yellow armbands. He somehow had never seen Jews before, which I found a little hard to believe, but I'm going to go with it. Um, and so he asked what was going on here. And when he was explained about the ghetto, because he was definitely um, uh, opposed to having, you know, these, these people closed behind these gates um, and basically imprisoned. He sent for some of his Jewish soldiers to come and, and demolish the gates. Um, Napoleon um, was, was then basically emancipated them. He actually picked the two Morpurgo brothers as well as another Jew, to put on the um, municipal council. And so he, he essentially gave the Jews a level of freedom that they had not had for centuries. Um, it's, um, it was very um, liberating and at the same time somewhat confusing for the Jews of this time because they, they never knew how much was too much. Um, and this is another theme that I talk about a lot, is the struggle between assimilating um, as, uh, versus um, how much religious tradition should you be giving up in order to assimilate. And so this was, this was definitely a, a moment of trying to wrestle with that. Last but definitely not least, we have Francesca Marotti and her husband, Emilio. Uh, what do we need to know about them and what they add to the book? This isn't just a story about the Jews of Ancona. I also wanted to capture 
um, what it was like to be a Catholic in the city at that time. The Catholics felt very um, threatened by the um, by the encroachment of the Italians through their country. They were frightened that the um, French were going to do what they had done in France and stop the um, you know put a, a halt on the Catholic religion. Um, Francesca is a highly devout woman, um, and she's married to really a um, abusive and um, eventually murderous husband. And so this this is a dilemma for her. She um, she has been told by the priests, you know, and by her upbringing, that she's wedded to her husband forever, and that she has to help him. And she does do this despite all of her misgivings over what's going on. Um, one thing that happens to Francesca, which again was an enormous gift of, of research, was that I had stumbled upon the story of the Madonna del Duomo um, in the cathedral in Ancona. There was this portrait of the Virgin Mary. And in um, these Vatican sources that um, one of my students actually helped me locate, there's the story of how uh, Francesca Moratti, who was, you know, based on this, was a real-life character, and her daughter Barbara were the first to see the miracle of the portrait, which apparently turned its eyes on to look at her and a tear streamed down her her cheek, the Madonna's cheek, um, which was taken as a, a miracle um, and also as a symbol that Napoleon would not be able to conquer their city. This, in fact, turned out not to be true, of course, um, but you know, certainly Francesca's reaction to this um, solidified her, her faith. You know, she, she felt completely blessed that she was the first one to see the miracle. And things happen with the portrait that make her question that face um, a little bit down the road. But, um, you know, certainly she felt very loyal to Emilio. Emilio is a fictional character. And one of the things that happens with him is that he's already having issues with the Jews because his father lost his, his shop uh, early in his life to the Jews. His family was dispersed. And um, Emilio basically had to marry Francesca um, to be able to continue to live, live on her, her fortune, which wasn't really a fortune, live on her farm, basically. Um, he um, has another encounter with a Jew that turns him even more bitter against them. Um, and so in these riots that I spoke of before, right before Napoleon comes, he actually um, takes part in the riots, and he actually ends up um, killing uh, a number of Jews. And one of the, um, one of the hardest uh, p chapters for me to write was that I had him recount this to um, his wife, to Francesca, 
you know, with all, you know, feeling like this bloodlust um, that he had done this wonderful thing. And that was a really hard chapter to write. That would be very difficult, I think, um, even if it, there were no personal connection um, because of the people who are being victimized. I think that is a, it's hard to put yourself or even to want to put yourself in that kind of place. Absolutely. What would you like readers to take away from Beyond the Ghetto Gates? Um, so I certainly um, would love people to know more about this history. I found it absolutely fascinating. Um, and, and I'm happy to introduce people to this, this little um, slice of history that they hadn't known before. Um, in addition, I feel like it is, um, with un the unfortunate rise of anti-Semitism uh, in, in the U.S. and in Europe, I think it's a good um, book for discussion about that. Um, and so that would be something that I would want um, non-Jewish readers um, and Jewish readers to take away from it. And again, as I said, there is this struggle between the assimilation and religious tradition, which I found is a really interesting point of discussion, particularly for my Jewish readers, that I think that that is something that um, really for, um, especially for American Jews. This novel came out a few months ago. Are you already working on something new? I am. Um, I am actually writing the sequel. Um, what happens next is that Napoleon takes this very weird expedition to um, conquer Egypt. And he does this primarily to sort of harry the British um, there's talk of maybe he'll find a, the, a path to India, but certainly just um, conquering Egypt is enough to sort of disrupt British interests in the area. Um, on that trip, he takes 126 um, of what he calls savants, um, scholars, scientists, mathematicians, engineers, um, and they form an institute in, in Cairo and, and produce these amazing works. Um, but he, uh, Napoleon himself sees himself as sort of the savior of the Egyptians. And he ends up fighting um, the um, Ottoman Empire, um, which comes to attack him, and actually ends up because he, he then goes into Israel. And, and he ends up losing his very first battle in Akko, um, in Israel. And there's more to the story than that, um, but we certainly continue to follow uh, Morel's story, Daniel and Christoph, um, and there's a lot of other things that take place. It's an amazing um, piece of history, again, that I'm happy to be playing with. It is an amazing piece of history. It sounds wonderful. I'm so glad that we aren't losing touch with these characters. I had to. I have to admit, I became quite fond of them by the end of the book. Yeah, no, I, I didn't feel like I could let them go yet. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Michelle. Well, thank you. It's really been a pleasure doing this. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction a podcast channel on the New Books Network. 
And today I've been talking with Michelle Cameron about Beyond the Ghetto Gates. Find out more about her at www.michelle-cameron.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews, and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.